Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who can't find an ATM for the World Bank anywhere, but in my spare time, I'm talking tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jim Young Kim, the president of the World Bank Group. It's one of the three big international organizations that just launched the Famine Action Mechanism, which is a new program dedicated to preventing future famines. And they're going to be doing that with the support from Microsoft, Google, and Amazon. We're going to talk about that and a lot more. Jim, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks, Kara. So I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm at the World Bank, which is your building uh, on H Street, not far from the White House and everything else. But what I really, people in Silicon Valley, and we have a bigger audience than that, uh, don't really know exactly what you all do. So let's first talk about how you got here and then where the World Bank is right now. And then we'll move into these programs. The announcement that I would be the U.S. candidate to take mm-hmm. this job was a surprise for everyone. It was a surprise for me. Twenty years before, in 1994, I was part of a movement to close the World Bank. We called it 50 Years is Enough. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the movement was that the World Bank had so ignored things like human development that had been so focused on just GDP growth that we thought that on the 50th anniversary, 1994, they should just close its doors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Tim Geithner, uh, I, was, I was president of Dartmouth College at the time, and Tim Geithner, who was a Dartmouth graduate called me and said, hey, would you be interested in uh, being a candidate for the presidency of the World Bank? I said, Mm -hmm. Tim, you know, I edited a whole book that said it should be closed. I was part of a movement. He said, "Ah, that's not a problem. And I I still to this day day believe that if it hadn't been President Obama, Mm -hmm. there's no way that I would have gotten this job. Because I walked in the uh, Oval Office because he interviewed me and he said, you know, why why should I nominate you? And uh, my first words were, have you ever read your mother's uh, Ph.D. dissertation? Mm -hmm. He looked at me and he said, well, yes, I have. And so she was an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And when he burst on the scene in 2004, I learned that his mother was an anthropologist. And so I got her dissertation from the University of Michigan archives, which is where all unpublished dissertations go. I read the whole thing. And I said, you know, just like your mother, everyone predicted that the artisanal industry in Indonesia, where she was doing her work, would collapse under globalization. She showed that it actually flourished. And he said, you know, that's, that's what I'll do. I've been on the ground doing development mm-hmm. work for 30 years. I'm not going to be able to give you the 30,000-foot view of macroeconomists, but I'll tell you if things are working on the ground. He looked at me and he said, you know, I get that. Mm-hmm. And so then two days later, I was in the Rose Garden and he was announcing that I was the, the candidate. And I, I, it, it was just a very special set of circumstances that got me here. Well, what is your background? Talk about your background, what you've done. So I'm, I'm a medical doctor mm-hmm. and also an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And I was born in Korea. My parents, though, met and married in New York City. And so uh, they were among a couple hundred Koreans who, because they were good students, were able to come and do some training here. And there were literally a few hundred uh, Koreans in all of the United States. They met, they married here. My brother was born here and then went back to Korea intending to stay. But, you know, what's happening all over the world right now is people's aspirations are going up, mm-hmm. mostly by looking at their smartphones. Right. For them, it was a very direct experience. They saw what life was like in the U.S. And so when I was reached the age of five, we came back to the United States. I grew up in Iowa, of mm-hmm. all places. Of all places. And, and then ended up going to medical school because my father didn't couldn't stand the idea that, that uh, I would study philosophy and political science and mm-hmm. become a politician, which is what I really wanted to do. And then um, did anthropology and then uh, met this guy, my, my lifelong friend named Paul Farmer, or 
all of our adult lives anyway. And we created this organization uh, that began uh, working on health care programs in some of the poorest places, Haiti, um, uh, in, in the slums of Peru. Yeah, intractable places, tackling intractable problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Partners in Health has just been hugely successful. And so uh, I was doing uh, uh, health and education work on the ground forever. And then just these crazy jobs kept being offered to me. You know, uh, one was to be the um, head of HIV department at the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, you know, we, we started a movement to treat HIV. And it's hard to understand. You know, it... Back in um, the late 1990s, when we had these miracle drugs, which uh, just really extraordinary, the antra- highly the re- yeah. active antiretroviral therapy, it was really the ACT UP guys. It was it was a very small number of people who said, now that we've put our bodies on the line and we've got these drugs, there's no way that we're going to let people say only the rich can have it. Right. So it was them and Partners in Health and literally a handful of others who were saying everyone in the world should get access to these drugs. Mm-hmm. So I went to the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization had been very much, uh, um, you know, standing on the sidelines, not arguing for HIV treatment. I started a movement there called 3 by 5 to just accelerate HIV treatment. Now 20 million Africans are on HIV treatment. But, you know, the whole world, including a lot of leaders in tech, were saying, oh, you know, HIV treatment in Africa is not possible. And I kept going around saying, are you kidding me? There's 25 million people living with HIV right. in Africa. If we let them all die because treatment is too complicated, mm-hmm. we will always be remembered as a generation that did that. Right. You know, it, it's going to be that bad. Yeah. Yeah. And so the world changed. We had success. I left WHO. The folks at Dartmouth came along, asked me if I'd be interested in being their Running president. I never, I never thought about doing something like that yeah. before. Uh, but uh, I, I thought, well, what an opportunity. If, I, if, we, if we can influence all these young people to think about poverty and mm-hmm. to think about inequality, uh, that would be great. Um, it didn't take very long for me to realize that was actually not the job of being president of Dartmouth. No, it's fundraising. And, and, then, and then three years later, Tim Geithner called me. And I, when Tim called me, I thought he was just trying to you know, see if uh, one of his friend's kids might get into Dartmouth. I, uh-huh. I had no uh-huh. idea that that, that was your other case. job. That, that was, was your my, second that job. That was the right. other job. But I, and so here I am. And, um, you know, I had known that um, the World Bank had changed a lot. One of the great things about the World Bank is we're really data-driven. And it comes from my medical training. Mm-hmm. And I know you have doctors in your family. Yes, you know, I do. It hasn't been that long where we have done things only on the basis of evidence. There's still so many things we don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, we've the World Bank has really adopted that evidence-based uh, approach. And so, for example, it's uh, the World Bank's approach to health and education changed dramatically over the last 20 years mm-hmm. because they realized that all the evidence suggests that more investment in health and education can lead to better economic growth. So you shouldn't think of it as two opposed things. You invest in roads to grow the economy, invest in people when you can. All the evidence suggests that it's the countries that invested in their people. In their people's education, which has been the focus of a lot of tech Company, right. tech, tech leaders who Absolutely. have all the money. So how many people work here now at the World Bank? Um, you know, 15,000 permanent mm-hmm. employees, probably about 25,000. And like it's frequently 000. under attack politically yeah. uh, for, for doing things, and it had, has its ups and downs. What, do you, what are the big challenges you face right now well, coming uh, in? Well, you know, right now today is the specter of what's going to happen in the economy. Mm-hmm. So there are places that we're worried about. There are countries like Turkey that have a lot of uh, dollar-denominated debt. And there's also just tons of uncertainty. We don't know how these trade discussions are going to go, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that trade has been really good for poor people. I mean, that, that's something that, right. that's not raised very much. Mm-hmm. But uh, the more that is traded and the more that it's poor cleared. countries and poor people are involved in trade, the better they've done. And, you know, China has lifted almost a billion people out of extreme poverty. And they'll tell you that uh, trade was a huge part of it, that Absolutely. their ability to participate in trade. So we're worried about that. We're worried about, you know, a uh, Places like Venezuela, that if they become much more unstable, the effects on other countries and even the global economy could be huge. So we're worried about that. But I tell you, the biggest thing I'm worried about is uh, what people are going to do in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, Jack Ma tells this great story. He's, he says, you know, my grandfather worked 16 hours a day, six days a week, and he felt very busy. I work eight hours a day, five days a week, and I feel very busy. My kids are going to work three hours a day, three days a week, and they'll feel very busy. And I like to tell Jack, well, 
Jack, your kids may not be working at all. You're, right. You, you're, right. You're in a you know that's a, that's a big topic that we it's talk about topic. a lot. And so th- I'm, I'm worried about the fact that on the one hand, the future of work is changing quickly. How quickly? I don't think anyone knows. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's going to change quickly in the UK and the US. Those are the places where we think uh, automation and artificial intelligence will have the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. But in developing countries, you know, Bangladesh which is famous for the garment industry. And the garment industry has always been thought of as the place that will, as the industry that will always require human hands. Mm -hmm. Garment industry owners are buying these things called SOBOTs, S-E-W-B-O-T-S. And 3D printing now can make shoes and shirts faster than human hands. Absolutely. And so the big question for me is, okay, so... Uh, uh, we always say, well, the Luddites were wrong. And the Luddites were wrong because each new phase of technology created new jobs. And so the question for me is, will countries be ready? Will their populations be ready to tackle those new jobs? Will this country be ready? Yeah, will this country be ready? Will any country be ready? But if you look at places, you know, Indonesia has 37% childhood stunting, India 38%, uh, Pakistan 45%, most of Africa has about 30% childhood stunting. And what we know about childhood stunting is that it's a very simple measure, two standard deviations, uh, height below height for age, and so, you know, we, we have so much better studies. Uh, the imaging now shows mm-hmm. that these children have as much as 40% less brain volume and, and far fewer neuronal connections. And uh, we've done independent studies of children who are stunted and they learn dramatically less in school mm-hmm. and they earn dramatically less when, when they get into the workforce. And so when I look at these situations, 35 40% uh, childhood stunting and also school performance isn't good either – the question is, what are these people going to do? Right. I mean, if the low-skilled agriculture jobs are taken over by, by automation, right. what are people going to do? And at the same time, you know, if the folks in, in Silicon Valley who, who are my friends say, look, 2025, 2030, everyone's going to have access to broadband. Mm-hmm. And while everyone may not own a smartphone, they'll be able to look at a smartphone. Right. Someone around them will have one. Right. And so the process— Everybody will own a smartphone. Everybody will—probably, right? Yeah. And so the process that my parents went through, mm-hmm. that very few other Koreans went through right. in the 1950s, right. they saw what life was like in the U.S. Right. and they aspired to it. They learned how to speak English. Right. Those aspirations are going to go up. And, you know, we, in a very nerdy way, we actually studied this. We said, well, what happens when you get access to the internet? Well, let's talk about why people – this is a big topic, and I do want to get into some other announcement you're making. But this is, to me, the biggest topic going forward for the world in terms of what jobs are going to be in the future. You guys are doing uh, an initiative, correct? Explain sort of what you're doing around that. So every year we publish something called the World Development Report, and it takes on different issues. And so this year is the World Development Reports on the future of work. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what comes out of it is that, look, it's not all doomsday in the sense that the rapid automation that's going to happen in the richest countries, especially the U.S. and the U.K., will probably happen slower in developing countries. Mm -hmm. And so what's the percentage of jobs that will be lost over the next decade or so? And, you know, we estimate between 5 and 12 percent. But we also say that we actually don't know because things could happen very differently and those jobs could go away much more quickly. There's a series of things. It's not just automation. Right. It's automation, robotics, right. AI, right. artificial intelligence, right. changes in driving right. in terms of transportation, right. in healthcare delivery, in printing, in manufacturing. It just goes it, – it iterates through the system in Absolutely. a way that people I don't think understand even in a developed world. And most of the people, right. interestingly, in Silicon Valley tend to say, well, it's like farming to manufacturing. It was better for everybody. How are you all looking at that? Because I, I don't necessarily think it's going to be better. Right. We don't know. We don't know where the jobs are going to be. So all over Africa, I talked to um, heads of state, mm-hmm. and, and they, they and the ministers of finance tell me, well, you were born in Korea. We want to go through the same thing Korea went through mm-hmm. because South Korea, when I was born in 1959 in South Korea, the World Bank would not give a loan to South Korea because they thought it was hopeless. They literally said, this is a basket case. It's hopeless. And, you know, literacy was about 25 percent. All of the industrial capacity and minerals were up in the northern half of Korea. It was it was the sort of uh, gentleman farmer part mm-hmm. of Korea. So they said, you know, this is an all um, uh, agricultural economy. How on earth are they going to grow? So for fear that they would never be able to pay back a loan, World Bank wouldn't give them any. Right. right? And so – what, the, what did they do? They went from agriculture to light manufacturing, uh, you know, literally from human hair wigs to black and white TVs, now mm-hmm. to, to silicon chips. But if you ask the Koreans, they'll tell you, 
that path is probably now closed. And mm. the question is, is it close to all of Africa? Well, you know, you don't see huge amounts of industrialization in Africa. Yeah. And yet every African head of state minister of finance tells me we're building a, an industrial park. It's going to be a special economic zone. And, you know, it's, it almost feels cruel to tell them, I don't think that's going to happen. Right. Therefore, if that's not going to happen, what are you going to do? Well, you know, with the internet connection, maybe your uh, citizens could, uh, you know, could go online and offer and be part of the service economy. Right. Coding but if you have 35 or... percent stunting mm -hmm. and one study in East Africa showed that in looking at grade school teachers, you know, up to sixth grade mm -hmm. primary school teachers, only a third could pass the second grade competency exam. Amazing. Right? So, uh, and, and so the teachers can't teach. Teachers, right? Yeah. And so, so this, is, this is all part of the sense of just enormous urgency we're feeling right now mm -hmm. to get on this task of trying to prepare these countries for what might come. Now, you know, uh, China is so interesting to me because you've got the Alibabas and the ten cents of the world mm -hmm. who, for lack of a better word, have kind of democratized access to capital. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Jack says we can give up to one million renminbi, which is about $160,000, and get it in your account in two seconds without ever meeting you, without ever shaking your hand. Mm -hmm. The so-called KYC, know your customer mm -hmm. rules, have completely changed. We know from their online behavior right. how much money they can handle. Right. right. So if you're an entrepreneur, these, and, these, and you, these loans they that, make that's right. quickly, it, and you've shown that you can handle that much money, you push a button. Two seconds, it's in your account, and then because it's in their interest for you to be successful, Alibaba helps you with access to markets, with access to right. to accounting. They do their accounting on the Alibaba website, mm -hmm. uh, to supply chains. They market for you if your product is doing well. So there's that. But then there's also Shenzhen, which is the most, you know, robotized, right. you know, AI-driven industrial area that I've ever seen. So they have all the different possible futures of work mm -hmm. in China. And we're now trying to see if we can transfer some of those to Africa. So what if the African economy, instead of going from light manufacturing to heavy industry, goes from agriculture to small and medium enterprises that have access to capital, have access to mentoring, that, that, that people help right. them start their businesses, they create jobs, and then they sell their products all over the world. Mm -hmm. That's one possibility. Mm -hmm. Other possibilities are, you know, tourism is extremely um, uh, job intense. There's a mm -hmm. lot of jobs in tourism. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at all the, the areas that could potentially work. Which but, is, but, but the answer is we still don't know. We still don't know. One of the things we do know uh, that I talk about a lot is that every single job that can be digitized will be digitized. Yeah. And that's what people don't know. Uh, don't understand. I don't think governments do, including this one. Well, Jack says something really scary. He says it's not just the muscle power jobs mm -hmm. that are going to be uh, automated. The brain power jobs. Absolutely. Be, you know, radiology, right? And, and, and yep. You know, Don't if, be a radiologist. It, I always say that to mothers. It's going to be, yeah. you know, if not already, right? Yeah. We're talking with uh, Jim Young Kim. He's the president of the World Bank. We're talking about a lot of issues around work and also development and how this world is going to face the next few years of technology onslaught. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Jim Young Kim. He's the president of the World Bank Group. We've just been talking about work, and you just visited Silicon Valley. You know, this is a thing I bang on them a lot. Like, what are you going to do about it? And the only reason I do is because I know them, and I can't make government do it. I want to assess government in a second, but talk a little bit about your trip there. You just were there, and you're talking about a bunch of initiatives that you're doing. Yeah. Talk about what that was like. Well, so the two companies that I spent the most time with were LinkedIn and Airbnb. Mm -hmm. and, one around uh, jobs, yeah, one around and, and, jobs. And Jeff, uh, the CEO, Jeff Wiener yeah. at, at uh, LinkedIn, 
has been a, a, an incredible uh, partner for us. He, he learned about the work I did from a book about Paul Farmer, the guy I started the organization with. And, and so he's been trying to bring these ideas. And, and, and what, what we've learned, though, is that um, uh, just about every tech person I know, if you ask them, would you like your technology to be applicable in the fight against poverty, they all say yes. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing we've learned is unless you start thinking about the mm -hmm. applications in poor countries very early on, it's going to go in a direction and it may or may not, but most right. likely not uh, uh, very applicable in developing countries. And so for LinkedIn, it's the stuff we're doing with them is so cool because it turns out that they have so much information on the kinds of skills that are needed, the kinds of skills that are present in any given country, and where the skills are moving, mm -hmm. that we're now going to use this country by country to help planners. And, you know, mostly it's going to be ministers of finance, you know, and, and, and others plan for how they can uh, get a better match between the skills they have and the skills they need. Mm -hmm. And also what kind of uh, skills training they need to do. Mm -hmm. You know, with our group that uh, is in charge of the Middle East and North Africa, they just did a very simple thing. And they said, okay, so where are the skilled people from uh, that region going? And where are the skilled people in the region coming from? Mm -hmm. That in itself was just so interesting for us. They had this data. So, so just getting a sense for that. So what we're doing with them is extremely exciting, you know, for me, because of their leadership, Jeff's leadership, their commitment to it. I think we're going to have an impact very soon. So doing what precisely? So this is specifically for understanding what is the skill mix in your country, what are the skills that are needed mm -hmm. in your country, and what can you do to actually improve mm -hmm. the skills and prepare your uh, workforce to, to be able to fill those needs. Right. The other thing, though, too, is that in, in, within Africa, people are going to be moving around. And so mm -hmm. if we find that there's an overabundance of skills in one area and the need for them in another, we can do this Start kind of matching them. that should work. Right. You know, Airbnb Again, Joe Gebbia has been really passionate about this. It's complicated because, you know, when you have a disruptive technological innovation like this, mm -hmm. every individual country has to figure out how they're going to regulate it. Right. And so we're working on with the countries to help them make sure that this is beneficial to them. But, you know, tourism is an extremely labor-intensive industry. You said, yeah. And when you go from, uh, and, you know, they've been able to set up shop in places like Soweto in, mm -hmm. in South Africa. And so when neighborhoods then become place destinations for tourism and the people from those destinations can tell their story and then make an income, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's actually from a very things that, not just thing. Not just uh, from experiences for other the other things they're doing there. That's right. What, right. So, so they provide the experiences, but then, uh, uh, you know, they become uh, business owners and mm -hmm. they start hiring people. And, uh, you know, we, we think that tourism has to be a huge growth industry. Mm -hmm. You know, Chinese tourism, there are more Chinese tourists than any other tourists in the world. Mm -hmm. And right now, it's relatively limited. I mean, Chinese are, people still are putting lots of money into savings. You know, the, we, we look at a country's savings rate. So how much do people right. save? The U.S., it's like a negative. Zero, it's, yeah. It, people are in debt. Right. China, it's still 40 percent of GDP. Wow. And part of it's because they're saving because they don't think that they're going to be taken care of in the future. Well, right. China is developing all of these social security type programs. And so a lot of that, more of that money is going to be used, and we think, for tourism. So as that grows, countries can become, you know, much more uh, engaged in tourism. And, of course, there's a role for hotels and, 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 uh, and other industries. But this is small brings, businesses. That's right. Brings small businesses into right. the picture. But part of it is that we're trying to discipline ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason is because I keep telling this story. One of my good friends in the bank who left a little while ago said, you know, Jim, 30 years ago, we had an argument about whether to build telephone poles in India. And, we, and it was a heated argument. There mm -hmm. were very strong opinions on both sides. Mm -hmm. And luckily, we decided not to invest in telephone poles in India. Right. But my okay. question now, every day I ask, okay, are we doing the equivalent of building telephone poles in India right. somewhere? Somewhere. And I have to believe that we are. Yeah. And so now— What do you think that is? Well, I, I'm not sure, you know, yeah. but, but uh, we're not looking around corners like folks in Silicon Valley are, mm -hmm. right? And so four or five of our major units did their retreats out there and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, are going and visiting LinkedIn and mm -hmm. Airbnb, but also working with folks at Singularity University, mm -hmm. trying to get some sense of uh, what are we missing here? Right. But the other thing is— we're trying to bring the problems we face and put it in front of tech leaders. So one of the things they do is they do like to get involved in things like that. But some people blame them for these trends, 
for the automate. They're inventing the things. Uh, you know, I just wrote a piece this week about Mark Benioff buying time, and I said those that are killing us are saving us. Like, you know, they're taking, they killed the media this way, and now they're using their money to save the media, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing with tech. A lot of these, you know, Google, AI, uh, all the Uber, all the others on, on self-driving, tons and tons of Google again, social media impacting everything. How do you look at it? Is it just we'll just have to engage? Because th- these are the inventors of the things that are the problems you're about to face. Yeah, you know. Um, so how do you engage them? Like yeah. what? So, so, you know, Mark, Mark is, is someone I know. We're, we serve on a board together. Mm-hmm. And, and I know Mark really cares. Benioff. Oh, Benioff. Benioff, right. Yeah. Mark really cares about right. education. In the I'm not blaming States, Mark for, for most example, of it because right? it's just Salesforce. <laughs> no. He's not. He really cares about yeah. education in the United States. He's thinking hard with all his creativity that, that he mm-hmm. brought to his work. He's trying to think about how to make it better. And so, again, I, this is my medical training. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be evidence-based. Right? right. And, and this is not a time to sit back and think that our judgments are going to help. So my collection of evidence to date has been that these folks have been incredibly creative and um, they haven't been thinking about all the, no, you, you know, the side effects of what they do. Consequences. And so they, now they have to. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I think that's a good thing. We feel it's our job to continue to bring the problems we face every day, extreme poverty, the fact that um, food insecurity affects, you know, a couple billion people in any given year, that, you know, there's so much childhood stunting, there's so much, you know, uh, uh, terrible schooling out there. We try to bring our uh, problems to them and then are finding ways to use the technology and get them engaged so that they can make it work for everyone. Like, you know, Saul Khan, um, mm-hmm. uh, one of my heroes. And Saul, um, I just made an offhand comment to— This is—explain so who Saul, Saul is. Saul Khan is the Khan Academy. Right. And pro- Saul's probably—I think Saul's like the best teacher in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. Saul, the way Saul explains things. And his materials are so simple, so straightforward. But they're using AI in such interesting ways that if you, if you show that you like to learn a certain way, more visually, more words, you know, sound, mm-hmm. whatever— then he gives you more information with that knowledge that's mm-hmm. that's built on an AI right. system. And so I was so impressed with this that uh, I just made an offhand comment to the ruler of Dubai, mm-hmm. um, uh, Sheikh offhand. Mohammed bin Rashid. Just right? hang in with the ruler right. of Dubai. <laughs> well, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid is incredibly innovative. Uh-huh. And so I said, you know, if you just translated all of Salkan's materials into Arabic, mm-hmm. that could actually improve the quality of education throughout the region. So he did it. Mm-hmm. And it took it took like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. He had 7,000 people working on the translations. And it, it I don't know how much it cost, but it took a huge number of, of, of person hours. But it's done. And so I think that was the step needed to be taken. Carlos Slim has translated them into, into, into Spanish. Another great story. There's this company called Zipline, one of my favorite companies. Yes, we've had them on stage. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and this they, is drones. Explain what they do. So, so Zipline. Zip I mean, these guys are literally it's blood rocket, delivery, right? Yeah, they're rocket scientists. I mean, they're literally aeronautical engineers, mm-hmm. and they uh, met with the folks in Rwanda, and Rwanda had a problem with delivering blood, mm-hmm. and so they they, they literally. Built this is planes roads and, and all kinds of right roads and, and it requires a, a cold chain. I mean, you have to keep the blood cold over a long right. period of time. And what, you know, you can try to keep the blood at the clinics, but it's a huge endeavor. And so they figured out how to use uh, drones in Rwanda mm-hmm. uh, to deliver. Uh, Which, by the packages. way, is very hilly. It's very hilly, and it's so cool. I mean, literally, it's a big rubber band with something that looks like a plane that's uh, that's run on solar energy. It takes off and then. There's a box uh, with the with the blood. It's packaged, and they drop it from 30 feet with a little tiny parachute. It falls. They use it. And so I was so excited about this. I started talking about it uh, with other African leaders, and now I think they're in like 15 different countries. Mm-hmm. They're talking to the Indonesians right now. And you know, Indonesia with, with you know, more than 10,000 islands, this mm-hmm. could be a great solution. But you know, it took Kel Renato and his team— they had to go to each country and mm-hmm. see how what they were doing would be applicable in that setting. Mm-hmm. And that was the key. It wasn't that they were aeronautical engineers. It right. was that they were aeronautical engineers who spent enough time in Rwanda and now, you know, uh, Tanzania, Indonesia, other countries to be able to adjust this technology and make it work in, mm-hmm. in any setting. And so that's my invitation to all your listeners. Right? Right. We were very happy to help you uh, begin engaging directly in With specific this. problems. We have... The presence on the ground, you know, we understand the economics of it. We're so tech sector experts. These are experts. things that governments used to do, that governments are supposed to do, and, and stuff like that. And I think some of the, just even in this country, our initiatives around jobs and STEM are so weak 
and so not developed. I can't imagine they're developed everywhere. I mean, they are in China. They are absolutely China. That's why China's accelerating so fast past the U.S. and other countries. I mean, I don't say there's not a need for government, but a lot of things that government used to do now, the private sector, is that a comfortable thing? Well, you know, we're we're trying to understand that the you know the key is to get the outcome, mm-hmm. right? and so yes, of um, course, we're Absolutely. trying to be agnostic. And I, you know, I've talked a lot about how you know it might be um, the right thing to do to bring the private sector in more in areas like education and health. And I've been criticized for it. Mm-hmm. But the question I'm asking— Explain the criticism. Well, the criticism is, well, you know, these things have to be delivered by the, the public sector. Right. You know, you're not respecting teachers' unions, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you remember also the controversy when Microsoft tried to deliver—when uh, they did the one laptop right. per child that right. just sort of fell apart. Well, you know, the one laptop really per, beautiful per, per child was idea. a great idea. Yeah. But what they learned from that was it's not the hardware. It's mm-hmm. actually the software, right. which is why I, I've been so focused on the Khan Academy as opposed to you mm-hmm. know, the, the hardware— but, you know, that these of, devices become so inexpensive, that's like right. phones, and you oh, do yeah. everything via phones. They're so, and, and everything's going to happen on smartphones now yeah. going forward. It was interesting. About 10 years ago, I kept saying everyone will have a smartphone. It will be like a computer in your hand. And they're like, they can't afford money. These things will cost nothing. Yeah, yeah. Like almost nothing Absolutely. eventually. And this is how they're going to deliver what, That's what it looks like. Yeah. But, you know, the public-private message, you know, for me, I have a PhD in anthropology in the 1980s, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, we, we all thought that the battle between socialism and capitalism, you know, we would, didn't know where that was going to go. We all thought that, you know, socialism might prevail, and it just hasn't. And mm-hmm. so the questions we're asking here are, what is the evidence? Is there evidence that educational systems in poor countries in Africa will disrupt themselves by just putting more money? Mm-hmm. And the evidence is not good that mm-hmm. that's going to happen. And so the question question for us is can private sector entities that are doing it for, you know, what the governments actually can't afford, can they disrupt the system and bring quality in? And I, I, I've been arguing that we have to be open to that. Now, mm-hmm. we're, we're actually studying those solutions. It's funny, and my colleagues in global health and global education are, um, I think, looking at me now saying, well, wh- what direction are you going? And, and, and here's what it is. You know, we spent so much time lobbying governments to provide, uh, rich country governments, to provide more financing for health and education. Mm-hmm. And uh, not as much in education, but in health, my goodness, you know, what President Bush did with PEPFAR, you know, Bono's work, on, you know, the mm-hmm. Global Fund, there's so much more money. You know, when I started in global health, there's a couple hundred million a year. Now there's 25 billion a right. year. But that's not nearly enough. And, mm-hmm. and where we've come to is that now many uh, heads of state and ministers of finance are hiding behind that. And they're sitting back and saying, hey, look, if you give us grant-based uh, money, we'll spend it on health and education. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, we won't. Right. And, they, and they, they see these grants as a way of taking the money they'd normally spend on education and right. putting it elsewhere. Right. Now, we have overwhelming evidence that your investment in people, what we call investments in human capital, right. are absolutely determinative of whether your economy is going to grow. I mean, if you – Korea, uh, China, Vietnam, Japan, um, all of the East Asian countries, they invested in education before the World Bank thought they should, mm-hmm. right? Korea's second loan from the World Bank was for education, and they were ridiculed mm-hmm. for taking a loan for education. But now we know that they knew something back then. And everyone else is playing catch up. And so what we're going to do, I keep asking donors to give more. It's important to give more, Mm -hmm. but it's nowhere near enough to meet the need. And so we're going to rank countries. Uh, We're doing a human capital index. Mm -hmm. Now, we do something called the Doing Business Index. Mm -hmm. And the week after the Doing Business Index comes out is my busiest week because all these heads of state, ministers of finance are calling me. You know, it's it's like yelling at the refs, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're like like U.S. (laughs) News and World Report College. That's right. That used to be your thing, right? People think that yelling at the refs is uh, is effective, and so they yell at the refs. Mm -hmm. And I learned something from that, though, that people pay attention to rankings that come out from the World Bank Group. So we're ranking countries based on the quality of their investments in, in young people. people. We're looking at what we call learning-adjusted years of schooling because we now have a much better idea mm-hmm. of whether kids are learning in school. We're adding childhood stunting, which is hugely important. Absolutely. Under five mortality, are kids living until the age of five? Overall mortality, are they? how healthy are they between the ages mm-hmm. of 19 and 60? So those are really clear indications of the quality of your job market of the future. Mm-hmm. And we're ranking countries. And, and therefore, it, countries can go into them. It's going to be very controversial. Yeah. It's already. And I've told my team, look, I'll take full responsibility for this one. I'm right. doing this because I feel like I have a moral responsibility mm-hmm. to just expose the real situation. Right, and what's going on. And then, and then the other part of that is we're saying to every single country, but we're not doing this 
uh, you know, with any bad intention, we are ready to help you right now. And technology and is key. Right. We've got to find the technologies in health and education that will help them move much more quickly than they otherwise would. But we've got to create demand. Right. That's a really, we're going to get to that next. And we're also talk about famine when we get back. We're here with Jim Young Kim. He's the president of the World Bank Group. When we get back, we're going to talk about all kinds of issues of where this leads. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're here with Jim Young Kim. He's the president of the World Bank Group. Uh, we've talked about a lot of issues, including how tech can help development. But one of the things we're talking about is human capital, because most people think that there isn't, that's not, doesn't matter anymore, that it's not going to matter less and less. And you were talking about working less and things like that. But one of the programs that you're announcing is the famine action mechanism, which is astonishing that we're talking about sort of high-tech jobs or anything else when famine still exists around exactly. the globe. Yeah. And these solutions... It seems, again, another intractable problem that doesn't seem to go away. Talk about what that, where it is and what the newest initiatives are. Well, you know, I'm a medical doctor and anthropologist. And so mm-hmm. when I came in here, I had to really intensively study macroeconomics and finance, especially two, mm-hmm. the, two of the areas, and, you know, and also transport and, and uh, IT. I had to study these things because, you know, yeah. we do all of them. And so... I kept asking uh, what everyone else thought I think were stupid questions. Mm -hmm. Why can't we do this? Why can't Mm -hmm. we do that? And so when Ebola happened, you know, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, 11,000 people died. But it's really only the infectious disease docs who know how close we were to having a global disaster. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were just lucky that it didn't go to Karachi or Delhi or, you know, um, uh, and that they stopped it when it got to Lagos in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it, it was a million dollars a case to stop it in Nigeria, but thank God for the US CDC and Mm -hmm. for the Nigerian government that got ready, because if it had spread quickly in Lagos, we would have been looking at a very different outcome. And so I kept asking, why did we have to wait eight months Mm -hmm. before the money flowed? Why are we waiting for the kindness of strangers? There should be some kind of mechanism. And so I asked the insurance companies, the, the, the the reinsurance companies, the insurance companies that insure other insurance companies, I asked their CEOs, I said, well, why don't we have pandemic insurance? And, I, you know, with kind of a smile on their face, they'll say, well, you know, Jim, if you can f- if you can find out the annual incidence of any problem, we can insure anything. Yeah, they can. Because we just, just get a, they can insure anything. Right. We get a number, we go mm-hmm. to the capital markets and say, hey, here's how we, here's the likelihood yeah. that we think this happening. And therefore, you put your capital in, it will be at risk. You could lose it all. Uh, but we think it's about a this much chance. And because of that, we'll pay you this much interest. Mm-hmm. And so we started pandemic insurance. Mm-hmm. So we now, we have a pandemic facility that, has a big chunk of money that will automatically release when an epidemic gets to a certain level. And we went even further and got a chunk of cash that will that's protecting the bond. And so, in other words, if it doesn't quite reach the threshold, but it's still serious, the cash will release. Right. And it so they can immediately get that's started. Right. In the World Congo, Bank can immediately that's right. Right. In Congo, uh, the, the first outbreak in Congo, we released within weeks literally a million dollars a case, which is kind of now what we think it takes to, mm-hmm. to, to put one of these things out. Uh, a million that, dollars each uh, case. Per case, right? right? That's what it took in so Nigeria, 10, 10 million, and right? that's what it took in DRC. But, you know, uh, from before, we waited and waited and waited until it got bad. Same thing happens with famine. 
the response to famine, you know, what the governments tell us is, well, of course we're going to respond to famine, but until the emaciated children appear on television, we, it's really hard to raise the Money. interest, right. which is just so crazy. The United Nations, there are five stages of famine. The United Nations doesn't call a famine until it reaches the fifth stage, but it's the first stage where you've got to really take it on. Right. And so the, the question we asked was, can, you know, the question I asked was, the damage it does. Can, can we do right. famine insurance? Right. right? And so um, uh, we were thinking about financial innovation innovations. But it turned out that because we were asking the questions, they said, well, what's really key is getting information early. And so we reached out to uh, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, and they mm -hmm. said, hey, we'd love to work with you on this. And? So we're coming up with a system, and we're, we've been building it, coming up with a system, an early detection mechanism that will tell us where the areas are uh, that looks like food security might be an issue. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so then what we can do as a World Bank is we have money for these countries anyway. We can move much earlier and get programs going that could potentially stop famine. But it's working with huge amounts of data, but often very difficult so what to collect do, what data. Do they, how do they help you, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft? Right? Right. So it's really about how to manage data, how to collect data from all kinds of sources that we wouldn't have thought of. I mean, we we don't actually know all the different ways they're collecting data, mm -hmm. but they've decided to come oh, they're together. they're very good at it. Yeah, very good at Tricky. it, right? Very yeah. good at it. And then, then they'll also, try to sell you something. Well, but, but no, th this one is, this one is uh, you no know, I, I don't know I'm where it's saying. coming from, but they're doing it, you know, with us without, mm -hmm. without charging. And what we hope is that this will tell us all kinds of things about what's happening in the poorest areas, everything mm -hmm. from, you know, uh, floods and droughts to the status of particular crops mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. migration, movement of people. So you can predict and, That's famine. right. So we can predict ahead of time. The World Bank can come in and move some of the money there ahead of time. And then at the end of the day, we might also create, you know, a, an insurance-type instrument. So mm -hmm. bringing together technological innovations with financial innovations could actually stop famines from ever happening again. Mm -hmm. So this is, it's very exciting. That and means you're catching it before it catching happens. Catching it before it happens, right? right? Famine, by definition, is large numbers of people who are starving to death. Mm -hmm. There's no reason for that to ever happen. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of food in the world to stop that from happening. Right. And uh, this is going to be a very exciting process. And to have the tech industry involved early How on How did you get to, what, did, what was the approach? Is that they were looking for? We're already talking to those guys anyway. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, in, in the process of putting this coalition together, it's the International Committee of the Red Cross, the UN, and us, various leaders stepped up and said, hey, this is great. We'd love to participate. Right. And it's data-centric. It, the, their work is data-centric, data -centric. early warning-centric. Early yeah. warning-centric. Yeah. So they're building systems. And they're right. um, you've seen all the news about tech, the tech lash in terms of the effect on the elections and things like that. Is this a way for tech to start to claw its way back? I mean, because, I mean, the change the world image of tech is always so, we're changing the world, we'll change the world, when in fact they were just selling toilet paper or whatever, or, or getting data so they can send you the right shoes to wear or things like that, and collecting an enormous amount of data that many countries are worried about, the privacy issues and, and things like that, because they're using it. And so there's always been a distrust of tech way back from one laptop to a child, everything that they were trying to sell, software. Yeah. When you start to reach out to tech leaders, how do you think about that? Well, again, as I said, I, I've been very pleasantly surprised that, mm -hmm. that tech leaders are not spending every day thinking and digging deeply into how their tech can be applicable to the Central African Republic. They're mm -hmm. not doing no. that. But they're not equipped for that. They don't have people uh, who know how to do that. And I, partly, you know, we think it, it's been, it's been uh, uh, partly our fault. We haven't spent much time out there. And we should be because, you know, again, if, you, if you're assuming that uh, agriculture to light industry to heavy industry is not mm -hmm. going to happen in most no, parts yeah. of the world, we should be out there thinking right. what's going to be the, right. the, the path of growth for, mm -hmm. for these countries then? You know, what do they have to prepare for? And so this is why I now I'm, I'm going out there twice in a month. And then mm -hmm. we uh, our own people are going out there on a regular basis mm -hmm. uh, because we have to have this conversation. So far, everyone has told us that they'd like to be able to have an impact, we'll see who's serious. You mm -hmm. know, in this case, both LinkedIn and Airbnb have been very serious, have been mm -hmm. very serious about engaging right. us. And Microsoft, Amazon, and Google now um, uh, have been very serious as well. But it's got to be different. Before, there was this illusion that if rich people are generous mm -hmm. and give some of their money and start right. a foundation, got a lot of it, yeah. the problems will but be solved. But they still do exist. I mean, they you've still got the Gates exist. Foundation, you've got Mark's Foundation, now you have Jeff Bezos's Foundation, yeah. each hitting a different area, but they, they, I found they largely want to run things themselves. Well, but the, these foundations are important. I mean, you know, the Gates Foundation changed my life, and mm -hmm. we, got a, we got a grant early on mm -hmm. that allowed us to tackle drug-resistant TB, mm -hmm. and nobody else would have funded mm -hmm. that. So I'm forever grateful to the Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. And Gates Foundation is actually 
in so many things that we're doing because mm -hmm. they're really trying to understand the whole problem. I, I don't. I know less about the other foundations, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I know Bill and Melinda, and and they're really trying to get their heads around the whole problem. So this is not about charity for them. Mm -hmm. They're trying to solve the problem, which is great. Which is their nature. But 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 not not everyone's like that. A lot, mm -hmm. You know. So for so many generous people, it starts out being about their generosity, mm -hmm. right? And it can't be. It's got to be about solving the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think tech people are going to be better at that. They're yeah. going to be good at that. Yeah. If I tell them it's not about just you giving more and more to charity, it's about you engaging with us to try to solve the problem. And then mm -hmm. use your financing as strategically as you can to get at what might solve the problem, mm -hmm. right? And so I hope they move into this. But what we know is that if we approach them and just appeal to their kindness and generosity, they may do it for give a while, but they'll get bored. Yeah, right? give us your But money. if we engage them with seemingly intractable problems and say, do you think your technology can help us solve this problem? Right. That could be that could be much more productive. All right, let's finish up talking about your wish list then. What would yeah. you like if you had to go through these companies? What would you like from them? <laughs> what would Google? You know, for any of these companies, I would like them to second people to us, right? Mm -hmm. I'd like that for them to pay the salaries and then send their best people just mm -hmm. to come and sit with us mm -hmm. and uh, learn about how we do things, tell us about how they do things, but then take the problems that we face. Go, go, go with us, you know, to the poorest countries. Mm -hmm. You know, take a look at these different problems. And when I go there, I start – my mind starts flashing because, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, all these problems that I deal with every day, I start mm -hmm. thinking, well, could that work for that? Could that work mm -hmm. for that? I went to Hangzhou to visit, visit Alibaba, and we had like 10 ideas mm -hmm. that came out of that one he's meeting. He's very enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. He, he is. Yeah, Jack is great. I mean, yeah. he's one of the first now people I met. Now he's a lot more time. In my, yeah. And he's – Jack – thing is education. Yeah, it right? is. And he's focusing on educating principals mm -hmm. uh, in the principals of schools in management, mm -hmm. which is probably exactly right for, mm -hmm. for, for many of the schools, especially in China. But anyway, um, that, we'd love to have people here just sitting with us. And we have financing. We, we, you know, when they I walked can, in the they door. Are, they can pay for it. Well, when we walked in the door in April, I mean, uh, July of 2012, we were at $35 billion. Mm -hmm. We just got a capital increase. No, nobody thought we'd get it. But, you know, we had worked so hard to reform this organization that we're now edging toward $100 billion a year. But that's not nearly enough. We want mm -hmm. to use that money mm -hmm. to have transformative impact. And we just we, – we, we don't – we're not used to thinking so far out of the box right. the on way things, the, the Googles uh, and Microsofts and Amazons like are. Bitcoin, for example. Those are the kind of things you have to start thinking about, right? Our first uh, I, uh, reaction. Let me say cryptocurrency, that's not right. Bitcoin. Right. We, you know, our first reaction to things is, you know, one, is it can it be helpful to developing countries? And two, are there dangers mm -hmm. for developing countries that we need to help them deal with? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, at first, a lot of these cryptocurrencies, at least the experts told me, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them were more like Ponzi schemes. Yeah. And I said that, and that keeps coming back to haunt me. But what that led to is we started the looking blockchain. at yeah we started looking at blockchain and distributed ledger technology mm -hmm. and it turns out that there are so many applications and the first application that we put in place is we we uh, we sell bonds in other words mm -hmm. we need to raise money on mm -hmm. the capital markets and so we did the first blockchain bond in in history and, and it was pretty simple it's just using distributed ledger technology to take care of all the paperwork mm -hmm. now there are huge companies that do that paperwork for you right. which adds to the cost of the bond and mm -hmm. so doing it through distributed ledger technology reduced our cost dramatically. Mm -hmm. Now, the companies that do that work are not happy about it, right. but what a great application. Sure. And, and so we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep looking at what are the specific aspects that we can put to use right now mm -hmm. to make things work better. But, you know, we need to be disrupted. We it's very hard for us to disrupt ourselves. Absolutely. I, you're absolutely, I, you're exactly right about foreign ministers. They're just not going to disrupt themselves. The, the, education the, system. Education, it's hard. It's very hard. No, and they so won't. The bank, you know, mm -hmm. the World Bank, we now need to be uh, right. disrupted as well. And, and then at the same time, the World Bank has sort of been known as lecturing to people yeah. across. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so there's not a two-way discussion going on. Well, it's interesting. My uh, uh, great friend and, and uh, predecessor, who's just, who was one of the great World Bank presidents, Jim Wolfenson, told me that when he walked in the door in 1995. Every single vice president was a white male. Mm -hmm. right? Now we're as diverse as, as, as uh, it, you know, half female. We're from all over the world. But that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And there was a strong sense back then that it was former colonial officers coming to lecture people. Yeah. Right? And so I've really worked hard to try to change that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so in Latin America, they've had an especially difficult relationship with the World Bank. But I spent 15 years working in the slums of, uh, of Lima, Peru, so I mm -hmm. speak Spanish. 
And so I'm now el chino que habla español. You know, <laughs> ¿Quién es el chino que habla español? Who is this crazy Chinese guy who speaks Spanish? <laughs> Not what we thought yeah. a World Bank president would be or would right. look like. Right. And it's made a huge difference in Latin America. Just right. that I took the time right. to learn Spanish mm -hmm. and, and, and work in these communities. Well, diversity is a whole other topic. We can get it's into another topic. It's a whole other topic. But, I mean, the fact that I'm so different from what they expected. Right. In Africa, they, 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 they certainly see me differently because they remember me from the AIDS battles. Mm -hmm. I mean, they remember Remember mm -hmm. me, you know, running around Africa trying to start AIDS, right. AIDS treatment programs. So, so finishing up, last question. Yes. If you could ask for anything right now from Silicon Valley, just whatever, besides piles of their piles of money, what would it be? It, it would be engage, people engage, engage, engage. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're sending people out there because we don't know how to bring people here, right? We, it's, it's not been easy to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that they're going to think that it's in their interest. But, you know, we do transport, energy, IT, we do health, we do education, we do macroeconomic policy, we do all kinds of, uh, of infrastructure. Self-driving. Uh, we have 189 somewhere. member countries. We have yeah. 189 member countries. Yeah, what about a self-driving experiment somewhere? Why not? Why, Why not? not? We'd be happy to do it. Right. And so we've done some small research projects, but it's mm -hmm. not on the top of everyone's list. But we are open for the, the best people to come here. Uh, I will make sure that the experience is great for them. And I know now our teams are hungry for this because disruptive mm -hmm. technology is a big theme. And I had to bring that whole operation into my office to make sure that it wasn't just sort of cast aside. Well, as the office of innovation. Because it makes our, it makes our work harder. Yeah, you know, we have absolutely. to think more. We have to think about more complex deals. It's harder. But that's what I would – because, look, I, I want to end with this. I mean – President Macron and Chancellor Merkel, they mm -hmm. are so concerned about Africa. Mm -hmm. And what they will tell you is that if you think the Syrian refugee crisis was bad, just wait until these African countries start to collapse. Absolutely. It's very close to Europe. Life in Europe, as we know, will change because they're going to see on their smartphones that life is better over there. Mm -hmm. right? And so for me, it's not a matter of stopping migration. I'm a migrant. I believe right. in migration. You know, migration is a great thing. What I'm saying is that on issues like climate change and on issues like people's aspirations going up, if the technology world doesn't engage, mm -hmm. the world that they're leaving to their children and grandchildren, in fact, the world they're going to live in themselves is going to be so ugly that you're going to have a situation where the richest will always be able to protect themselves. Yeah, walls. But they're going walls. to have to build higher walls, higher platforms, and it's, it's not a world that you want to leave to your children. No. And your children will ask you, what you do. How could you leave that kind of world to us? Mm -hmm. My children are already asking me. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are the largest funder of uh, climate change activities mm -hmm. in the world. And mm -hmm. we became that way well, in the last five years. Well, that's a whole other layer on top that's of right. it. That's right. But we got that way in the last five so years. Forced been, migration. Yeah, I've been pushing and pushing and pushing. We're now the largest uh, financer of climate change activities. But my kids still ask me, mm -hmm. Dad, why aren't you doing more mm -hmm. for climate change? Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Everyone will ask us this. And if the tech industry thinks the questions they're being asked now are tough— Wait till the questions come about inequality, about you guys have stoked the aspirations of everyone in the world mm -hmm. and then taken all their jobs away. Right. We don't want that to happen. We don't, and right. we know the leaders don't want but, that to happen. But, Jim, they gave you Fortnite and Amazon Echo. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I won't make you answer that. Anyway, this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much. This is Jim Young Kim. He's the president of the World Bank Group, and you have to help him. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Kara. Thank, Thank you for you. having me on. Thanks again to Jim Young Kim for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't like the interview or you just want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go check out our latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.